in the northern reaches of Asgard, the home of the mighty Norse gods. The wind whips about the frozen landscape, singing wintry songs to the sculpted peaks. Tis said that no living being dwells within that icy realm, for the deadly cold would slay both gods and mortals alike. And yet, not even the gleeman of old, storytellers to kings and earls, can see clearly into those debatable lands. And many are the stories that could be told of that realm of endless winter, if only the truth were known. This is such a story. I am Miles Stokes. And I am Elizabeth Alley. And this is The Lightning and the Storm. Behold! Episode 6 of our 13-part love letter to Walter Simonson's epic 1980s run of The Mighty Thor. And behold, we are after the war with Surtur. We are after the big thing that the whole first year was building up to, uh, about a year and a half in. And Thor is still going. It's still got more awesomeness for you. But I gotta say, it's really weird to be doing stories that aren't all leading up to or part of the one big thing. We're in a brave new world, which is fitting because we are at the halfway point of our podcast here, really. Uh, yeah, once we finish this, that'll be six down, or at least halfway through, like, the original 12-episode run. We have that bonus 13th, of course. Mm-hmm, hmm So, hey, high five. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm a little tired. I pretty much beaten that cold, but I had uh, quite the Memorial Day weekend journey, so... I'm glad to be here, though. Yeah, I I think I may have uh, over-imbibed on uh, mead and the equivalent myself, but uh, that which does not kill us makes us stronger or um, makes us into Volstag, which I also feel good about. (laughs) So uh, good options all. So one thing that I can't believe we haven't talked about, a listener mentioned, um, is what Walter Simonson's doing these days. He's actually writing and drawing another comic about Norse mythology called Ragnarok. Yes, I have heard of it, but I have not read it yet. It is really sweet. It's very different than what we're reading here, than anything Marvel's done. It actually takes place after Ragnarok, when the world has gone utterly to hell, and like most life has been annihilated, and it's about uh, Thor as basically a Viking zombie. Like oh. he, he's kind of he's kind of a corpse, but he's still the god of thunder. Like trying to find what justice he can in this fallen world, and like a bunch of dark elves or the other main characters. It's super rad. That reminds me, actually, of Helheim, Cullen Bunn and Joel Jones' take on the old uh, Viking uh, zombie book by Oni, which is fantastic, and you should definitely read it. Wait, wait, wait! Cullen Bunn and Joel Jones did a book about zombie Vikings, and I haven't heard of it. Like, how? And it's a sorceress who like tricks a Viking into loving her, and then turns him into a zombie. Okay, so Shades of Lorelei, too. Yes. Okay, I've got to read this book. Everything you just said is super exciting. We'll have to trade. Okay, so you read Ragnarok, I'll read Helheim. We'll both be better people. Deal, I'm in. <laughs> Sweet. Um. Okay, but we are not talking about zombie Vikings or zombie Thors uh, today, although we are talking about the non-zombie equivalent of each, Um. because we're talking about... Okay, so I was thinking about what was in this arc, and basically what we have alliteratively is compassion, kissing, and communists. Does that sound about right? It sounds fantastic, yes, and I, it does. I agree. That's pretty much the theme of this upcoming arc. It's a strange one. Now, we are going to be skipping an issue that takes place uh, in the midst of these. We're going to be skipping number 356 because it's a fill-in that has nothing to do with the current plot. We did cover that one in our preview episode that Indiegogo donors uh, could listen to, so if you want to check it out, then feel free to become one. So for now, we're going to be covering number 355, 57, 58, and 59. 
And yeah, this is kind of a, a slower arc after the Cert War, you know, all the bombast and the and the epicness. But there's still a lot that happens and there's a lot of heart in it too. And a lot of kissing. Yeah, as um as Hub of Tighten Up the Defense sometimes describes things, there's a lot of comic in this comic. Like, <laughs> I, you know, it seems sort of inconsequential compared to some of the stuff we've covered before, but I was looking at our outline and it's like way longer. How did that happen? Our outline is a monster because there's not so many fights. It's all these people talking and doing stuff. That's the problem, I think, because fights, you can just say they beat the hell out of each other and let's list some sound effects. Yeah, a fight scene could be like five pages long, but, a con- you know, conversation, hey, what are you doing? Oh, I'm not- I don't know. What are you doing? Oh, man. <laughs> Accursed Simonson with his lots of bang for your buck and lots of story and well-thought-out character moments. Definitely a lot of well-thought-out character moments. I actually did really love these comics. Oh, yeah. And I got to say, the one we're going to dive into first, number 355, maybe my favorite. This one was great. And they all have subtitles, which are amazing. Yeah. So this one is The Icy Hearts, or My Dinners with Thor. And it is penciled by Sal Busema. Uh, and he'll be back later, big time. And we did look up the pronunciation of his last name and uh, opinions varied. So if you have a correction for us, let us know. Yes, if you are, in fact, Sal Buscema and you have a correction, especially let us know. Also, we'd love to talk to you about Thor. Absolutely. So this one opens up with some narration that may be familiar if you remember a few minutes ago. Uh, I did it last time. You want to do it this time, Elizabeth? Sure. In the northern reaches of Asgard, the home of the mighty Norse gods, The wind whips about the frozen landscape, singing wintry songs to the sculpted peaks. Tis said that no living being dwells within that icy realm, for the deadly cold would slay both gods and mortals alike. And yet, not even the gleeman of old, storytellers to kings and earls, can see clearly into those debatable lands. And many are the stories that could be told of that realm of endless winter, if only the truth were known. This is such a story. And I enjoy that we have this sort of uh, languorous, gradual introduction as both the narration and the art kind of zoom in from this wintry murderscape of mountains where we last saw Thor when Hela dropped a mountain on his face. Inside the house uh, within it, it's it's this great uh, narrowing of scale, narrowing of scope that I think uh, works quite well symbolically in terms of what we have character-wise here in this issue with Thor. Yes, we open on a massive fur-clad man watching Thor sleep in an icy house, and this man is holding Mjolnir. Tis a goodly mallet, Mjolnir. The dwarfs made well this magic hammer, a true servant against all that is evil. And he puts it down just as Thor awakens. So that's a thing. I mean, it's been such a big deal that Beta Ray Bill could lift Mjolnir, and here's some random giant old guy in the icy wastes who's now flipping it around, like it's me with my screwdriver at work when I'm bored, walking between (laughs) computers that I fix. So he's a mystery, but right off the bat, we can intimate that he's not necessarily threatening. One, he saved Thor's life, but two, he's worthy. Apparently. And Thor wakes up and immediately wonders, am I dead? And the old man says no, as he chisels these beautiful statues of women and animals from the ice. Like, he's this giant, he's quite imposing, but everything he does is just so careful and gentle. He's like a great big tall Santa. He kind of is. I mean, you know, change the color of the robes, and he very much is. Sure. But the old man says that, you know, he wasn't the one who tried to kill Thor, but Hela clearly has it in for him. He saved him from freezing, but for now... It's wrestling time. Thor has to wrestle for his dinner. 
And Thor, I mean, he's exchanged maybe six words with this dude, but he thinks to himself, I feel as though I can hardly stand, and yet my host would fight before dinner? Very well. The guest must acknowledge his responsibilities to his host. Yeah, so is this some sort of common situation covered in Asgardian etiquette? Like, oh, gotta wrestle the host. <laughs> oh, yeah. You, uh, you, you learn that right after you learn which uh, frost giant fork to use first. <laughs> Thor, of course, loses immediately. He's been battered both body and soul. But he tried, so dinner is brought by the living ice maidens. Yeah, these ice sculptures are, if not sentient, at least animated, which is pretty impressive magic. And Thor talks about how maybe it would have been better if he had died because Odin is gone and he doesn't know if he can still go on. And the old man has no patience for this. He says he expects more of Thor and Odin would expect more of Thor. It almost sounds like he knows not only who Thor is, but who Odin is and what happened. Exactly. And Thor is outraged. He says, what do you know about Odin? And the old man reveals that actually he knew Odin and he kind of gave him his first job. But, oh, it's time to go to sleep now. And Thor does. And the next morning he awakens and takes a walk with the old man out in the icy domain. And Thor's still sorrowful. He's still thinking about the conversation they had last night and, you know, the events of the last many days. But the man distracts him. The man points out the cycle of life all around them, how a seal is being killed and eaten by a polar bear, and that polar bear may soon be killed and eaten by a hunter. And he says, There is no shame in living. There should be none in dying. And Thor wonders, the guy's a stranger, but he feels like he's standing next to his father, and he asks his name. He replies, I've had many names, young lordling. Tiwaz was one that has served as well as any. When they return, Thor puts it together, hey, Mjolnir fell when he did, and yet it's there. Which means somebody had to lift it, which means this guy must have had to lift it, which means he must be Odin. And we know that this guy was indeed, like, throwing Thor's hammer around while Thor was asleep. But Tiwa simply says that, no, no, it was his ice crystals, his ice statues that brought the hammer here. They're not alive after all, so they don't need to be worthy. Wait, so non-living things, does that mean robots can lift the hammer? You know, it's funny you should ask, because there's actually a robot called the Awesome Android, who later goes by Awesome Andy, and I believe works for She-Hulk's law firm. <laughs> and um, he had this ability that, uh, I think it was the mad thinker who made him, gave him where he could emulate any personality trait. So at one point he emulated Thor's worthiness, and he was in fact able to lift Mjolnir. Nice. So, I don't know if he counts as a normal robot with the whole worthiness thing, but still, there is technically precedent. Sure, sure. Well, Thor accepts Tiwaz's explanation, and they wrestle, and while Thor does better this time, he still loses and goes to sleep. And on the third day, Thor awakens to Tiwaz breathing life, literally, into these statues with his own magic. He again exclaims that Tiwaz must be Odin. And Tiwaz says no. No, he is one of the Aesir, one of the sky gods, and once he was even called the Allfather, but he wanted freedom, not the servitude that comes with rule. And it's interesting to me here that Thor goes into a discussion about how he didn't really know Odin that well, as opposed to asking, wait, you were the Allfather? Isn't that kind of a big deal? But, you know, I kind of buy it at the same time, because Thor is not a detective. He's not a solver of mysteries, a, a reader of lore. He's a guy who's basically made of fists and a great big heart. Like, Thor is all about his emotions, and so of course his priorities are not, let me learn about the history of this realm that I'm a part of, but more, man, I miss my dad. 
Yeah, he focuses on the fact that Odin knew this guy and never told him, and it, it continues, you know, his questioning over whether he knows his father at all. And they talk some of Odin's mysterious origins of the recent story we learned of Odin and his brothers going into the realm of Muspelheim and stealing the flame eternal from Surtur. And also of this one old story from like the pre-Simonson days where apparently a giant floating eyeball told Thor that Odin was a fusion of four earlier gods. I haven't read that story, but now I really want to. I'm really just thinking it's just Shumagorath who is in the Marvel versus Capcom fighting games and is sort of a Conan crossover villain, which is a big eyeball. I think more comics need disembodied floating eyeballs that tell you things. I agree. <laughs> I think life does. I mean, that would be terrifying, but also awesome. Sure. Well, Tiwas tells Thor that, you know, a father's love is more relevant than his history. Thor knows who his father is, and that's the thing that should be most important. I do love, though, Simonson's sort of uh, nod to reconciling his own more Norse-accurate mythology with some of the wacky Marvel stuff that came before. Just being, you know, somebody said this, somebody said this, whatever. The most relevant stuff is the core nature of the character, and that's what you want to do with a character that's around for a long time. You don't want to deal with, like, the little tiny bits of continuity. And I say this as somebody who loves continuity, like, way too much. But instead, you want to cut to what makes Thor Thor? What makes Superman Superman? Like, figure out what works about that character, and if some of the details don't quite line up, whatever. Don't sweat it. It's like Thor's learning about retcons. He totally is. <laughs> and then Tiwaz turns to Thor. Have you ever heard of Nathan Christopher Charles Ascani Dayspring Summers? No! Listen, Thor has just survived an avalanche. He doesn't need to have any kind of a brain teaser right now. That's true, yeah. Thor can't handle Cable at the moment. He's, he's still concussed. But now they have a third wrestling match, and Thor wins, which Tiwaz basically says, congratulations, now it's time for you to go. Yeah, but Thor doesn't want to leave. I mean, after so long, for the first time in ages, he finally feels at peace. He finally feels like Odin may be gone, but he's okay. He's a part of the world, and that's all right. And Tiwaz just tells him, no, we all live in cycles. Mortals live in cycles, and they know it better than gods, but gods are just as bound. The ice woman that Thor saw being brought to life speaks, We live only for the day we are made. With the night, we melt even as we dance before the fire. But we live and enjoy the cold and the warmth, even in our brief span. Surely your father, for all of his cares, enjoyed the cold and the warmth and the many sunrises? And as the crystalline woman speaks, she melts because she's sitting on Tiwaz's outstretched hand, and merely the warmth from his body is enough. And she continues speaking, reminding Thor of his oath to Midgard, his oath to the stolen mortal souls that Malekith removed from their bodies and sent to Hela, and how Thor cared enough to even send his friend Fandral to comfort his old friends. She asks if he can really turn away from those he so cares about. And Thor's face is so sad and almost childlike when the woman melts. You know, he really is at a vulnerable point in his life with Odin gone. <laughs> And so we mentioned that Sal Buscema does the art for this issue, and he'll, of course, be the ongoing artist taking Thor over a little over halfway through the run. And I do prefer Simonson's art simply because Simonson's art is without peer. It's amazing. But Buscema just captures such humanity in some of the faces that he draws, and I really enjoy that. Like, the characters are so emotionally expressive in their faces. They are. His work is a little more human-sized in a way. Like, I feel like it, he is very good at expressing that human emotion and and making things realistic, but still comic booky. I don't know if I'm explaining that super well, but... 
No, I, I completely agree uh, on, on all fronts. And yeah, this issue is a great showcase. It's just such a, a quiet, gentle issue. And uh, Busama sells the hell out of that. But it still, it brings up that this Ice Maiden knew a heck of a lot about Thor. You know, of course she would probably know about his oath to Midgard and probably could have overheard the things about Hela when Tiwaz was speaking, but... How would she know about Fandral and Dr. Donald Plague's staff? And once again, Thor isn't worried too much about that. He's mainly just thinking of his own emotional journey. And I like that. I like that Thor is not the world's greatest detective. He's just a dude who cares a lot about a lot of things and also is very good at hammering and lightninging and stuff like that. <laughs> well, after one final dinner, Thor agrees to go, although Tiwaz turns down his invitation to come with him. He does ask Thor to check in on some travelers at a hostel not far away. And so Thor leaves and does so, and after a bit of a journey, he finds, in fact, that awesome-looking hostel that Frigga and all of the Asgardian children were seeking refuge in during the Asgardian War with Surtur. And this is kind of a big deal, because Thor has told a few people about the death of Odin, but most of Asgard doesn't know because they're on Midgard, they're on Earth. And Frigga, Odin's wife, she doesn't know either. She's been in this hostel the entire time. He turns to her, and he's... Without words, he doesn't even know how to say anything to her. There's no need to speak, my darling, for I know already the tidings you would tell. I know that I've lost my husband, as you've lost your father. Hold me for a moment, my child, for I feel your father's warmth in you, and I miss him so. There, I am ready now. God, there's just such, I don't know, such dignity to Frigga. She's been through so much for so long, and here she's lost, I mean, not just the center of the realm, but the center of her heart, and she's just so quietly strong throughout the entire thing. Not that she's not feeling those feelings, but that she doesn't let them get in the way of all of the responsibilities that are upon her. She's truly a pillar of strength here, especially with this great band of children who, though they're probably much longer lived in human years than, than regular children, they're still quite innocent and naive and they do not know what's ahead for them. Exactly. And so from far, far away, Tiwaz watches from his citadel of ice saying that he's proud of his great grandson. Because Tiwaz is actually Buri, father of Bor, father of Odin, father of Thor. Which is kind of awesome. And what's even more awesome is that I looked up what the deal with Buri is in Norse mythology. And accounts vary, but two of my favorite versions uh, involve the second being ever to exist. So the first being was Ymir, the like giant, giant, giant of giants. Uh, he died and the world was basically built from his body. The second being was a cow called Adumla. And Adumla apparently licked a block of ice and thus freed Buri, who was trapped inside, or alternately, and even better, Adumla licked a block of ice into the shape of Buri, who then stood up and, you know, was the first god. So either way, this dignified old man, fond of wrestling and philosophy and compassion toward his great-great-grandson, he was brought into existence by a cow's tongue. That's amazing. And where was Adumla when Captain America was frozen? I'm just saying, you know, like he, he goes into the drink and he thinks Bucky's dead and there's a whole thing with a red skull mm -hmm. and then a cow just comes up and licks him and then he's fine and he just, you know, <laughs> keeps on serving and, and kicking all kinds of ass for decades. That'd be amazing. 
okay, Marvel Cinematic Universe, I feel like you're a little more malleable because you have less history. Make this happen. Give a Doomlet its own origin movie and then just factor it into Avengers Infinity War. Yeah, the title's right there. The Doom of a Doomla. Oh, it sounds great. <laughs> Throw an umlaut in there for the heck of it. I'm not sure if there actually is one, but I think it would benefit. Yeah, anything could benefit from an umlaut. So mote it be. <laughs> and that's that issue. And I gotta say, I really love it. I mean, I love that we already had our denouement last issue, the one where Hela tries to take the soul of Odin and all that stuff. But I like that we just get an issue that's almost entirely Thor- talking to an old man and coming to terms with this great loss. Like, it's so quiet, and a lot of comics, I think, wouldn't give this emotional development this much time to breathe. Exactly. It's just this nice lull for Thor, as you said, to process his emotions, but for the reader to kind of process what has happened, they're taking it so seriously, and they're letting it kind of develop so naturally that it must have felt more important to the reader at the time, too. I mean, in comics, people die all the time. I mean, maybe not so much back in the 80s, or at least they didn't come back as quickly in the 80s. But this really makes it feel real as you see the information kind of ripple through like a field of dominoes. Like it's just spreading out. Odin touched so many lives. So there's a ton of moments where people are going to learn about this and react. Yeah, I completely agree. And and very well put, Totally. That's how Thor reacts to everything. But we have a lot more going on in this arc and a lot of stuff that I personally was not expecting at all. Well, the title of this one kind of says it all and kind of doesn't. A new deal from an old deck or the credit card soldiers. Huh, that's not very Asgardian. No. But nonetheless, we will first jump in in Asgard with the usual caveat that we're changing the order of all the stuff to make it make more sense for a podcast with Thor and Frigga and the kids on the long journey home from the awesome hostel to awesome Asgard. And we see the frost giants from 354. You know, they showed up when Odin was gone and were thinking about taking over. And they're looming over the children of Asgard who are leapfrogging home. As we said before, the kids are eager to get home and they really have no idea of what's waiting for them. And so the Frost Giants grab the children, gloating that Odin is gone and they're going to eat the kids. But they're immediately confronted by Thor. And Thor would probably already be mad that giants are trying to eat the children under his care, but he's extra mad that they're talking about Odin. So he's ready to kill them, but Frigga convinces him to spare them. She even wants to leave them some of their food because they're starving and kind of pathetic. And Thor relents, but he hopes he won't regret it. And this is interesting to me because these are giants we've seen before. Like, one of them has very distinctive teeth. That's the only way I can describe him. Like, normal people don't have teeth like that. They're kind of on the outside of his face. Yeah, he kind of looks like Sloth from the Goonies. He kind of does. But yeah, because we've seen them before, you mentioned, Elizabeth, that you were thinking, like, will Thor regret this? Like, Simonson's almost setting that up. Yeah, exactly. With a master storyteller like Simonson, this doesn't have to be a giveaway moment. Like, this could be the breadcrumbs for another story. The children are pretty undaunted because, you know, getting picked up by frost giants who Thor then scares off. You know, for them, it's Tuesday. Or maybe Thor's day. Oh, good one. But <laughs> they just start, you know, playing, throwing snowballs back and forth, all that kind of thing. Thor's playing with them, using his hammer to whip up a flurry of snow. Yeah, they lay in wait to ambush them, and while Thor easily evades most of the snowballs, he does allow Hildy to knock off his helmet and says to Frigga... But if they were not encouraged with some small degree of success, the children would soon tire of the game, and the road home would seem that much longer. 
Thor is a wise and good dude, and also as a parent, that is a very good strategy. Excellent. I I, I have no children, but I, I totally trust you on this. Oh, man. I mean, your kids are cool and all, but I'm just saying Gunhild would be, like, the coolest kid to have. Also, possibly the most trouble. Yeah, I feel like I'd be very exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> Volstagg and his wife probably are. But Thor and Frigga get to talking, and he says that he's actually beginning to forget Melody, but Sif seems sharper and clearer. While he doesn't regret that she went off with Bill, he is a little worried that he's lost her forever. And one thing I like about this, as Thor talks to his, well, not mother, but mother figure, certainly, about his various loves, it never once comes up that he could possibly resent Sif for leaving him for Bill, or resent Bill for the fact that Sif left him for him. Like, that's the thing, Thor has so much innate respect for the two of them. I mean, it's it's actually very mature. Like, Thor's just not being petty about this at all. He's just sad that maybe he made some mistakes that has cost him both his lover and his friend. Yeah, Thor's a lot more mature than I would be in that situation. I don't think I'd be able to resist, you know, being a little catty about it. <laughs> right. I mean, she did leave him for his, like, horse-like double. But to be fair, <laughs> his horse-like double is super awesome! It is true. Everyone here is awesome, in, and that, I guess, is why they're so awesome about this. Right. But speaking of Beta Ray Bill and Sif, they are exploring New York City, and Bill wonders why Sif seems to be depressed. He actually asks her why the long face, which I gotta say, if you're a horse-looking dude, maybe use some different phrasing. Or maybe use that phrasing and then say, get it, right after. <laughs> you know, he has a, a mature sense of humor as well. You know, he respects her and her ability to get a joke. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> but yeah, and Sif just tells him that she's keeping a secret from the warriors, but she's not going to keep it from him. And presumably she tells him about Odin off panel. We don't see it. And I like that. I like that so much of the dynamic between Sif and Beta Ray Bill is hidden from the viewer because so much of their relationship developed away from the Thor comic. They clearly have their own life, their own dynamic together. And I enjoy that it kind of gets its own amount of space and privacy. That is really nice. And also, you know, we've had, we've heard Several people talk about Odin being killed now or gone and people reacting to it. So it wasn't exactly necessary here either. So it was a nice way to show their relationship by not showing their relationship. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. They then have a lighthearted moment when Sif places some Groucho Marx glasses on Bill. You know, if you haven't looked at the comics, Bill in his less flashy form is basically like a bronze... Uh, Oscar figure with no nose. So she puts the, the glasses with the nose on him. And mustache, don't forget. And mustache, and says, I think I'm seeing a side of you I've never seen before, Bill. Bald men are so sensual. I love them, and I also just love the visual of the very solemn Beta Ray Bill, even in Corbinite form, with like a great big mustache and nose and glasses. It's, it's delightfully silly in a way that we usually don't see in the main characters of this comic. Well, and it's kind of funny how Bill, you know, obviously he's a big gold shiny guy, but he's wearing like... Uh, a trench coat, and he is trying to be inconspicuous, but Sif is just in full-on Sif gear. She doesn't have the helmet on, but it's New York City, and probably nobody's even giving her a second look. She probably just came back from some really avant-garde form of aerobics. <laughs> I could see that. She's probably running it. Oh, man. <laughs> I would be. Wait a minute. Dazzler runs aerobics classes. Oh, that would be a team-up. I want that book. Dazzler and Sif sweating to, I don't know. <laughs> Sweating to the Asgardian oldies. Yes. It's all just like Heimdall on the Gjallarhorn. 
<laughs> Sweating to the Norse runes. Perfect. <laughs> so anyway, Sif and Bill are not the only ones in New York, of course, because we also have some gold armored robot looking dudes who identify themselves to each other as the GLF and prepare to rob a jewelry exchange. And what's odd, or even odder, is that they appear to have sprung from a deck of gold credit cards activated by the dustpan handle of a mysterious janitor. That thing we said about how some stuff happens in this arc that one might not expect? Yeah, yeah, this would count. Yeah, this is straight-up Silver Age stuff. It is, and it's totally what I think Simonson is going for here, because the fact is Beta Ray Bill and Sif promised Thor that they would pinch hit for him in terms of protecting Midgard, and a lot of the stuff Thor does on Midgard is not very Asgardian. It's weird. I mean, his first adventure was fighting the Stone Men from Saturn. Yeah, well, and even his battle with Fafnir, you know, reminded me of older comics, you know, more than the, the modern comics of the 80s. I mean, a freaking dragon? And so Bittery Bell and Sif, of course, spring into action because, well, this simply will not do. The robbers have this technology in their masks that lets them scan their opponents to figure out how they should handle it. And the technology isn't really sure what to make of Beta Ray Bill. Yes, there is a 72.39% probability that this guy is Thor, but the only option their scanner gives them is to take cover. Which I gotta say, well done, scanner, because goddamn. So of course Bill and Sif take down the GLF, who retreat and transform into gold credit cards once again, unbeknownst to Bill and Sif, who think they just disappeared. So Bill takes the air to find them while the janitor sweeps up the cards. They, needless to say, will be back. But we're going to cut to a different part of New York, to the Warriors 3. And oh, Elizabeth, I love the Warriors 3 in New York so freaking much. This is the highlight of this issue for me, probably, because they are going to one of my favorite stores, what Volstag believes is a great mead hall, Macy's. And there are so many pots and pans inside in the kitchen department, presumably, but no food. Volstag, however, is intrigued. They have nonstick cookware? What? He won't have to, like, leave his house to avoid doing the dishes anymore? <laughs> what I wonder is, where is Fandral's amazing green tracksuit, which we saw a couple issues before when he went to visit the Dr. Donald Blake's office? I mean, I'm happy to see his traditional green togs, but that tracksuit was epic. I'm pretty sure he keeps that in his pad back in Asgard. If they ever have a costume party, he'll just dress up as a Midgardian. Well, later we see Volstag in a hilarious and huge I Heart New York shirt, which is just pulled over his, you know, normal garb. That is my favorite single image in this entire arc. I mean, the kind of rabbit ear kind of tassel on his hat, just his whole... His whole Volstagianness, it's amazing. But he and Fondrel walk through the Upper West Side with Volstag bragging of his kills in battle when... They pass by the Power Pack. You know, those four kids, Alex, Julie, Jack, and Katie, uh, who all have powers that got given to them by a tiny little horse dude in a comic written by Louise Simonson, the wife of Walter Simonson. Yeah, it's them. But Katie wonders if Volstag really killed a thousand giants, and Jack scoffs until... Hogan comes up behind him and whispers, Ah, but there might be giants, my young friend. And the Lion of Asgard may have slain his share. Have a care, lest he hear and look to see who makes light of the deeds of the mighty. For his wrath is truly awesome. He hath been known to sit upon small trolls. As much as Volstag is clearly the funniest of the Warriors 3, I think I may get the most laughs out of Hogan. He just really enjoys being so, well, you know, 
grim. Yeah, you don't expect the humor from him, so that makes it like three times as funny. It's basically just like my husband. <laughs> yeah, I can totally <laughs> see that. And we'll see a little bit more of the power pack later. But for now, Bill and Sif are sharing a moment atop the North Tower of the World Trade Center, you know, back when there was one. And the way this scene is laid out is beautiful because you may remember back in Thor number 339, Bill was speaking of how he had sacrificed all of his humanity to become the guardian of his people. But he was wrong. He hadn't. And the visuals in that scene, we saw Sif reaching out for Bill's hand. And as he talked about how inhuman he was, she withdrew her own hand before touching it, unbeknownst to him. And here we see the same thing, but this time she does make contact. She does put her hand upon his. And it's such a wonderful callback to a scene that most people wouldn't remember, like a couple years later almost. I love the attention to detail there. Yeah, this was a, must have been a wonderful payoff for readers who were really following along and paying attention and also saving their back issues. Right. And Sif talks about her own experience, finally as Thor did, loving a mortal, that being Bill. I have lived a long time, Bill. I've never encountered another who was so powerful, yet so vulnerable. I would never have believed it possible in a mortal. One of the things I like most about the relationship of Sif and Beta Ray Bill, because I really like seeing Sif on her own, and here she is romantically paired again, but one of the things I like the most is that in that relationship, they both grow so much, they both learn so much, not only about the world, but about who they are as individuals, and that's shown so beautifully in this arc. Yeah, Sif has a new sympathy for Thor's romance with Jane Foster, which in turn, I think, gives her more insight into Thor. Absolutely. Bill, however, reminds Sif that he's going to be leaving for his own people, for the Corbonite fleet, as soon as Thor returns. And with Odin gone and all the chaos, Sif must return to Asgard. Which Bill graciously accepts. They're equals, they're peers, and as much as they're going to miss the hell out of each other, they know how their worlds have to work. And again, there's never any resentment between Thor and Bill, or Thor and Sif, or Bill and Sif. It's just respect. Now, speaking of characters who I respect, at least in terms of how awesome their armor is, remember the credit card soldiers? They're in their secret sanctuary being berated by a shadowy figure. And he calls forth the janitor, Sergei, and tells him to prepare an untested screening grid. So this guy, Sergei, he's the one who's been unleashing the credit card soldiers using his fancy broom handle. He's also apparently the creator of all of this armor, and he's working for these guys because his parents' lives are being threatened by the big boss. He's got no choice. So the bad guy leaves to charge up and prepare for his upcoming scheme, and you see behind his back, Sergei releases a bunch of cockroaches. And I really love the sound effects as he does so. We get a little skitter-skitter, but it's in this sort of sans-serif, lowercase font that only takes up a little bit of the caption boxes that it's in. It's nice—I mean, sound effects are amazing in this storyline. It's not a crack of doom, but it is nicely illustrative of what's going on and the feel of it. Yeah, it's evocative. Like, you can feel those little legs. Oh, man. So I grew up in South Florida, and the cockroaches there get so freaking gigantic. And to the, at this point, uh, even though I'm in Portland and there are barely any, if I even see a shadow that looks like it might be one at night, I freaking jump a foot in the air. Those things are the worst. I hate them so much. I don't know if I've ever seen a cockroach in person. Blech. Count yourself lucky. They're terrifying. <laughs> Although they are really impressive. Like, you can cut them in half and they'll keep skittering around. I'm uh, not saying you should. Yeah. But yeah, it's yeah. still pretty awesome. You got to respect them. Well, I figure, you know, after the apocalypse, happens, we'll probably have to eat them anyway, so it's good that they live. That's probably for the best, yeah. <laughs> At the same time, 
<laughs> you deep fry anything, it tastes good. We'll use some of Volstag spices. It'll be okay. Yeah, in the nonstick cookware. Perfect. <laughs> I'm glad we figured this out. Yeah, good. We got a plan. Okay, so in Asgard, however, Lorelai and Loki return to Loki's castle, and Loki reveals his perhaps unsurprising plan. With Odin gone, he wants to take the throne of Asgard. Lorelai, in the meantime, is admiring Loki's well-appointed Ari. I thought sorcerers lived lives of austerity, mortifying their flesh and suffering. Oh man, I just realized you totally have to talk to yourself. I know. I believe in you. Do it. I can do it. Okay. Many do, Lorelai, especially those who are not particularly successful. And because they are not successful, they measure their success in attainable goals, such as poverty, want, and hunger. A depressing breed, certainly not worth emulating. Loki is such a gloriously snarky dick. I love him. <laughs> Lorelai begins to flatter him, asking, didn't he once have a wife? Ha. <laughs> but Loki shuts that down. He just wants to talk about Thor. Thor, Thor. Always Thor. Loki, he's so unbearably dull. And he doesn't always do what I want him to. He didn't come back to me when the fighting was done. But he will, my dear. He will. Before, he thought you were a mortal woman named Melody. When you've used the contents of this box, Thor won't care who you are. He will be yours forever. And Loki gives Lorelei a gift from Lofn, a scent that will make Thor Lorelei's slave. And Loki's plan, once he gains the throne, is he'll arrange for an accident for Thor, but meanwhile Lorelei is plotting to see what she could get Thor to do for her. Yeah, so we'll see how all that goes. Now, Lorelai's sister, the Enchantress, has her own plots as she makes her way back to Asgard and realizes that the city is in ruins and Odin is gone. And the Enchantress doesn't really care about Odin, but she does really care about getting revenge on her sister. And she comes across Odin's scepter and casts a spell on it, saying, You have sought Thor, Lorelai. You shall find someone else. Someone you deserve. For it takes no foresight to know who will seek out the scepter with Odin gone. And when he does, sister, your fate will be sealed. <laughs> so we talk a lot about how Lorelai is like shallow and petty and shoots herself in the foot a lot. This really makes me appreciate the Enchantress and her smart, well-executed plans. Yeah, I mean, she's maybe a little evil, but she's just so uh, clever about it. At least she's not embarrassing herself all the time. Uh, this art on this page, by the way, is freaking amazing. We talk, I think we're probably both more verbal than visual people, so we talk about the writing and the dialogue and stuff a lot in Thor, but I gotta talk about the art on this page. Everything in the ruins of Asgard at night is all blue and black and gray, and the only color we see is the green from the Enchantress's outfit, and the gold both from her hair and from everything magical, from the fallen scepter of Odin, from the enchantment she casts upon it. It's just so visually striking. Between that and all of the shadows on the page, it actually reminds me a lot of some of the art of Mike Mignola and Hellboy. Definitely. And Amora's eyes in one of the panels, it gave me a flash uh, to Madeline Pryor in Inferno as drawn by Mark Silvestri. It was really interesting. I can totally see that, yeah. And Amora is right because later on, Loki, in fact, does come upon the scepter. And he sees Heimdall and offers it to him for safekeeping. Heimdall is clearly skeptical, but... Loki has now touched the scepter, which is exactly, presumably, what the Enchantress wanted. That will unfold before too long. 
The following day, Thor, Frigga, and the children come upon the devastated city. And Frigga thanks Heimdall for all of his service, for almost sacrificing his life in battle, and he sorrowfully hands her the scepter, which now is rightfully hers. And you were talking a lot about the panel right after that, two of them with their backs to each other. Yeah, we see Heimdall in the foreground of the panel, looking sad, sort of at the reader. And Frigga we just see from behind, looking away. But we see the vertical and horizontal lines of light coming from the scepter. And I love that. I love that she has this power. It's hidden by her body, but its influence, its power cannot be. I don't know, in the same way, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but that the sort of uh, challenges of office, the responsibilities of her as a ruler shine out from beneath her attempting to just be a person, you know? Which makes me wonder, why doesn't Frigga go for the throne? Like, she would clearly be awesome at it. She would be awesome at a lot of things, but I feel like in Asgard you have to be a super badass, like, kill a lot of people warrior. And Frigga is many things, but not really that so much. That is true. And and this is thrown into relief when the children show up panicked because their homes and their parents are gone. So Frigga takes them all in hand. Thor returns to his own halls in Asgard, his awesome giant stone house looking thing. When he hears upon entering. Hello, Thor. He thinks it's Sif, but it's Lorelai and she unleashes her potion, shattering the bottle on the ground and unleashing a bunch of mist. When I am finished with you tonight, my handsome one, you will never think of Sif again! And so there's our big cliffhanger, but I do want to take a sec to talk about Thor's sweet freaking bed. Like, okay, you know how if you're a kid, maybe you'll have like a race car bed or a princess bed or something? I don't know what this is. I guess I would just call it like a Viking monster bed. Yeah, it's got these big fish dragons looming over it, and they kind of look like Beta Ray Bill to me, which makes me think maybe... Thor and Bill and Sif could solve their whole interpersonal problems by just, you know, making it all happen right there. You know, I gotta say, with that much mutual respect and that much awesome might and that many kick-ass sound effects that they tend to all make when they do various things, I'm fully in favor of this. I mean, I don't know if many Asgardians are polyamorous, but I feel like these three, they could make it happen. Yeah, I I could see this working, and I don't know, does Norse mythology deal only in monogamy? I have no idea, but I do know that if this were to happen, then during like the most climactic moment, uh, Mjolnir and Stormbreaker could totally like clash into each other with a great big triumphant crack of doom. Oh, is that like crossing swords? I, you know, kind of. <laughs> you come here for the Walter Simonson artistry. You stay for presumably us thinking too much about threesomes between a Corbinite and two Asgardians. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> but the best, one of the very best parts of this comic is the outro copy at the very end. Next is Thor becoming a romance comic. Has Marvel's fabulous Rock'em Sock'em book degenerated into nothing more than puerile soap opera. Will kissing become the rule rather than the exception? Is nothing sacred? Ooh, kissing. But, you know, we've talked before about the strong kind of connection between soap operas and comic books. And really, this is super enjoyable anyway. And in fact, the next issue is called When Dalliance Was in Flower. Or Take the Cash and Let the Credit Go. And we are in New York with Beta Ray Bill and Sif. She's pondering everything she's been thinking about for the last many days in this city on Midgard, immortality, and also love. I have loved Thor, Bill. I love him still. And yet, I stand here, divided in two. Once said, some words may not easily be taken back again. Have a care, milady, what you should say. 
I have had too many cares, Bill. So many that I can hardly say what I mean any longer. Surely there is more to loving than that. So I know that Simonson was joking about this becoming a romance comic at the end of the last issue, but I gotta say, I really dig this stuff. Like, I love the crack of dooms in space, but just seeing the tender hearts of these amazing warriors, like, laid bare, that's real cool. There's nothing more metal than romance. (laughs) It's true, but what I love about this is it feels so authentic and so real and is such a contrast to what comes later. Right. Oh, speaking of things that will come later, on the streets during this time, Harokin of the, the Einhariar is talking to one of his buddies in the U.S. Army that he was fighting beside during the big cert war in the city. And uh, they talk about how awesome military assault weapons are. Yeah, that, that's totally going to come back and be awesome. But for now, that's all we see. Meanwhile, the GLF prepares to strike a federal bank and use a device to erase its financial records. The soldiers question their leader, won't that screw up the nation's economy? But he reminds them of how the government screwed them over. They're all Vietnam vets, and after the war, they weren't really taken care of. So they're just taking what they should have been given in the first place. Anyway, it'll just hit local bank records, and the U.S.'s businesses will remain sound. So yeah, Vietnam vets who feel they've been mistreated, it's kind of like the A-Team. Except with more golden armor, and less, you know, Mr. T. (laughs) Yeah, there is a lot of gold, just no gold chains. Hmm. Or maybe if you wear enough gold chains, then it basically looks like a giant full-body suit of armor. Maybe if you get enough of them together flying in formation, they look like a big giant chain. I love everything about this. Okay, (laughs) A-Team sequel now. I mean, I know they did the remake, but like another. Yeah, yeah, that one didn't fly. Now, Sergei, of course, has been watching all of this because he's both the inventor for the GLF and also in some ways the hostage of their leader, and he intercepts a phone call of the commander phoning, I don't know, somebody, and he learns two things. One, the device actually will wipe all federal financial records. And two, Sergei's parents are dead. They died in custody, but they're not planning to tell Sergei until after the mission. So then it'll look like he wasn't acting under duress since he already knew it. They are like extra, extra, extra jerks. Yeah, whoever these guys are, they are the worst. But the mission continues because after Sergei drops a bunch of those cards inside the Federal Reserve Bank after hours, they all burst out and start doing, you know, crime stuff including setting up the machine to wipe all the records. So Bill attacks the escaping soldiers because he had tuned Stormbreaker to their energy frequency or whatever, so they're like a homing beam for him. And suddenly, a giant one floats above him. It's the commander. Who looks kind of like a Macy's parade float, you were saying? Yeah, uh, yeah, with the Macy's reference earlier, I was like, what? That looks just like a parade float, so hey. This, this entire arc is just stealth advertising for Macy's. It turns out Simonson was totally on the take. <laughs> but they have a great big fight, during which the commander refers to Beta Ray Bill as a lackey of capitalism. So the GLF isn't so sure about this. Also, dude, you were definitely barking up the wrong world tree. Beta Ray Bill doesn't even know what capitalism is. I don't think he even understands money. He just knows about, like, awesome space stuff and fighting demons and being a Corbinite. And the credit card soldiers take note of this and start to get suspicious. But below, Sergei pushes a button, and the commander's screening cloak disappears with a shroosh, revealing... The Titanium Man. A very surprising character, because he's like a communist evil Iron Man villain guy. And this was the 80s, so, you know, Cold War-tacular. Bill, of course, has no idea who he is, except for the fact that now the dude in gold armor is wearing green armor, which whatever. 
Yeah, and he looks like this giant, fantastic Kirby villain because he is. I mean, he's big and bulbous with lots of, you know, detail in his costume and these great glowing eyes. Right. His head looks kind of like a big TV, like the old kind. Yes. And so the other important thing about the Titanium Man, his name is Boris Bolsky. That's kind of cool. It's nice and alliterative. But he also co-stars in the Paul McCartney of Wings song, Magneto and Titanium Man, a song that I really wish I'd known about when I explained the X-Men, covered the X-Men Avengers story where Magneto and the Titanium Man fight each other. But now I know, and now you know. And he was a communist agent who built armor to defeat Iron Man and also proved the USSR's superiority. Okay, you were doing the accent before. You should totally do his next line as he fights Bill. You got this. Even as America's economic system shall soon be destroyed, so shall you. That is staying on message. I kind of respect that. But Corporal Blue says, Captain, I didn't fight in Nam for three years to help some commie shaft my own country. And Captain Black replies, Neither did I, Corporal Blue. We may be thieves, robbers, and criminals, but by heaven, we're American thieves, robbers, and criminals. And as he says this, like, this giant American flag appears in the background of the panel behind him, because that's just how American he's feeling. This reminds me a lot of that scene in probably my favorite superhero movie, The Rocketeer, where the gangsters and the feds uh, end up teaming up because the bad guys are Nazis. And, you know, the criminal may be a criminal, but he's an American criminal. He's not going to take orders from some two-bit Nazi. In fact, I think I like that kind of better because, you know, communists, uh, you could say things in either direction, but Nazis, Nazis are just terrible. Totally. But really, the Titanium Man picked his Confederates in a very poorly because they are people who are automatically going to hate what he stands for. And he gave them very expensive, cool armor. And so with a zap, boing, rang, they begin to beat the living hell out of him, and he teleports away, because he's not ready for this. He wasn't expecting this. But Bill and Sif stop the fleeing GLF members. He'll let them go, but they can't keep the suits. They have five minutes to escape and ditch him before they go permacard. And they do indeed fly away, grateful for the reprieve. And they say, It does make a man wonder, though, if a horse-faced alien can fight so hard for my country... Maybe it's time to reconsider a few things. The more you know. Meanwhile, back at the base, Sergei sees the card that the Titanium Man has retreated into, and he rips it up. And that's actually kind of it for Boris for a while. Like, when he comes back, he's going to be super screwed up because this happened. So this actually is kind of a big deal for the Titanium Man's personal continuity. Not that that'll be a big deal in Thor later, but, you know, it's still nice to have the Marvel Universe being the Marvel Universe. It's cool that they remember that, actually. Back in Asgard, we don't have to worry about communism or capitalism at all. Just about, you know, mead and fighting and hammers and love potions because uh, we're back in Thor's room as Thor is surprised yelling out Melody's name. And Lorelai has gone full on Lorelai. I mean, she is dressed in what looks like fringed mini chap. She's got her arms up and she's in full seducto mode saying, Before the night is over, mighty Thor... We shall have no secrets between us. Call me by my true name. Call me Lorelei. And I gotta say, as much as Lorelei is not a good person and not necessarily an effective villain as villains go, I get it. The way Simonson draws her here, good God, she's incredibly attractive and incredibly seductive. Like, I'd be kind of helpless against her myself, even though I knew it was a terrible plan. At least if Walter Simonson drew her. She really does have some power to her. She just doesn't have a lot of intelligence or ambition to back it up. 
But Thor is uh, kind of helpless before her because the mists are filling the room. And I love the the panel layout of this page as we see, first of all, normal tall panels that go from the left side to the right side of the page. But they get thinner and thinner as we go as the mist fills up more of the page as we get toward the bottom. And the dialogue isn't in speech bubbles pointing to one character or the other. It's just captions that aren't attributed to either of them in the same font. It's so disorienting as they talk to the reader and presumably to Thor even more so. Yeah, it's extremely disorienting, and it's clear that Thor is far gone. Lorelai, my darling, I have never loved anyone as I love thee now. And of course, to prove his loyalty, she commands him to break the tusks that the departed Odin gave him after his first successful hunt, and with a grind, he does. Oh man, that's brutal. He got those when he was like a kid from his dad, who just died. I love that even her, you know, tests are just petty and mean. And as he falls more and more under her spell, she points out all of the reasons that Loki, not Thor, should be Asgard's new ruler. Because, of course, that's the entire reason Loki gave her the potion. Loki helped fight Surtur. Thor has sworn to guard Midgard. And a king wouldn't have time for her, Lorelai, and she would miss him so... And Thor has enough of his own free will to be resisting this, and his face is contorted like Baldur's in Loki's castle as he says, No, it cannot be. On the scepter of my departed father, I could not grant foul Loki kingship. Then stay here, stubborn Thor. Stay and breathe the perfumed air until every last vestige of your soul is mine. Do not stir until I return. Hey, it's like that scene from Secretary, but way more Norse. (laughs) So anyway, Lorelai flies to Loki's castle on her giant pink pelican. I love that thing. This is amazing. And it makes me wish that they had done like an action figure of Lorelai and the pelican. And because she could have played with She-Ra in her her winged horse that I had. I like this plan. Oh, man. And she gets to Loki's castle, but as soon as she gets there, green energy flashes before her eyes. Remember green energy? Like the mysterious thing that Amara the Enchantress did? Yeah, that. And she's in love with Loki. Yeah, which is kind of her just desserts, but it is kind of disturbing as well. I mean, come on, Enchantress. You need consent, even if your sister's totally a bad guy. Like, that's just weird, dude. And without the mist this time, we get the exact same panel structure as in her seduction with Thor. I mean, she even takes the same position as she, you know, seduces Loki, who is clearly in over his head. But this time we don't have the mists in the background behind all the narrowing panels. We just have a heart made of little hearts because Lorelai doesn't necessarily need a magic potion to be incredibly seductive. And I got to say for Loki, that makes sense. This is not a dude that thinks about romance the way, say, Fandral the Dashing does. This is a dude that thinks about being a total dick and, you know, casting a lot of evil spells. So he's just unprepared to meet her on the field of battle of love. Yeah, Lorelai completely overwhelms and seduces him. I mean, while she is under a love spell, Loki is not, and and yet she succeeds. Back at Thor's house, where he's still waiting, Heimdall arrives to check on him to deliver the bad news that the damage from the war with Surtur destroyed the Dungeon of No Escape and freed Malekith. He escaped from the Dungeon of No Escape. Well, well done, Malekith. But Thor is preoccupied because he has realized Lorelai was right, of course. The throne of Asgard must be Loki's! Dun, dun, dun! And that takes us to the last issue we'll be covering, The Grand Alliance, or Life with Loki. 
But before we see what happens with Lorelai's evil plan, we see the Warriors 3 walking into a bar, having gotten kicked out of their taxi since Volstag broke the axle. And the patrons all start laughing at this guy, calling him the Goodyear blimp. And Volstag is unperturbed. He just uses his Asgardian gold to buy, like, a ton of beer cans and dumps them all out on the table. Here, my voluble friend, allow me to purchase you a drink and gather your friends as well. For we have much to discuss, you and I. The time has come, the walrus said, to talk of many things. Of shoes and ships and sealing wax and Goodyear blimps and things. And all the while, he's still got that I Heart New York t-shirt over his pink and yellow outfit. I love Volstag so much. This was actually one of the scenes that really stuck with me when I was a kid because I just found it hilarious then. Just how, like, good-natured he was as everybody's mocking him. And he does look ridiculous in the t-shirt atop his normal outfit, but he just doesn't care. He's just going to kill him with kindness and also possibly alcohol poisoning. Yeah, he is 100% Volstag all the time. And he is also triumphant here because we see later the Warriors 3 have drunk everyone under the bar. Everyone has passed out, including the fine folks who called him names. So I guess that'll show him. Well done, Volstag. But anyway, back in Asgard, much more dramatically, Thor is holding his blazing hammer aloft and proclaiming that Loki must be king as Heimdall looks on totally appalled. So against Heimdall's protests, Thor claims that Lorelai has shown him that Loki would be the perfect ruler. Now, Heimdall ain't no dummy. He's got real good eyesight, and he also can see right through this. He knows that some magic has got to be at work, so he goes and fetches Frigga, who knows a little bit more about magic, and also is sort of running Asgard by default right now. And Frigga also quickly realizes something is up, and she summons the Enchantress. And the Enchantress summons Mr. Fantastic, and Mr. Fantastic summons Uatu the Watcher, and Uatu the Watcher summons Fin Fang Foom, and they just keep going. Okay, no, it's just the Enchantress. Uh, so she's pretty clear on what's going on, but the way this is drawn, it's freaking hilarious. Like, Thor's in the background of all this, just, like, cocking his head back and babbling to Hildy about how great Lorelai is, and the speech bubbles of the characters who are talking in the foreground just totally overlap his speech bubbles. Like, even the writer knows that Thor's totally talking out of his ass and not saying anything useful. After all the build-up for this story, I am so glad it's being played for humorous effect. You know that Everybody immediately knows that Thor is enchanted. Everyone knows what's up. You know, I was kind of worried this would kind of drag on and on and people would be like, why is Thor acting so strange? I don't understand, you know, and more miscommunications. But really, this is this is pretty enjoyable. And again, kind of a nice balm over the death of, of Odin. So the Enchantress figures out what's up. She tries to break the spell by kissing Thor, which doesn't work at all. And then Lorelai herself arrives. Enjoying yourself, sister? Cold constellation when Thor's kisses for me are so much warmer. Lorelai, dearest, I feared you might never return. Can you forgive me, my love? I could not bear it if you were still angry with me. Never again will I disobey you. Your word shall be my iron command. And he will support Loki's bid for the throne. And here again, you know, Lorelai's plan has come into fruition. And what she chooses to do, instead of trying to keep up any pretense for Frigga or Heimdall or anyone, she goes straight into rubbing it in the Enchantress's face and acting like a brat. Totally. Back in Manhattan, Beta Ray Bill and Sif are taking another long walk through the streets of the city. And this time, it's their last. They're about to say goodbye because... Sif is about to leave for Asgard, and Bill himself will soon have to go back to the Corbinite fleet. The times we've had together will remain with us forever. The passing minutes, the distant years, 
shall not diminish the glory of these few moments, and the gifts you have given me with those moments are pearls beyond price. Oh, do not say so, Bill, for you have given me so much, and yet I must ask you for the most priceless gift of all, my freedom. That, my lady, is all I have left to give. But this is truly heartrending, and and Sif leaves for Asgard. And arrives right where we left off to find Thor bewitched by Lorelei and intent on putting Loki on the throne. And Sif is horrified by all this. Like, how did things go so wrong? And Sif grabs Lorelei's wrist and demands that she release Thor, but Thor wards her off. And after Lorelei complains that Sif hurt her and that Thor should hurt her back, Thor backhands Sif, knocking her the hell over right in front of Heimdall, Frigga, and all the kids. He just does not care about anything but Lorelei. And, of course, Lorelai immediately leaves on her flying pink bird, but not before taking Thor's cape. Insult to injury! So everybody's trying to figure out what the hell to do, because clearly this is not going to work out. I mean, it's one thing if Thor's acting like a total love-struck dolt, but Loki on the throne? Nobody wants that. I mean, well, except Loki. And the Enchantress tries to get through to Thor again without success, because he threatens to hit her too! Yuck, Thor! Boo! Boo Thor right now! But fortunately, Heimdall, being all-seeing and somewhat all-knowing, he watches Lorelai, realizes that she's on her way to Loki, puts the pieces together with the Enchantress's plot for Lorelai to fall in love with Loki, and they hatch a fiendish plan. So the Enchantress goes back to Thor to announce that, hey, he's right. They're all convinced that Loki should be the next ruler of Asgard, so shouldn't he fly to Loki and tell him the good news? Say no more, Amora. I am off to Loki's distant fortress to bring him the good news. I can hardly wait to tell him. And then the Enchantress thinks to herself, And I would give a gold crown to see the look on Loki's face when you arrive. And Thor's facial expressions in this whole issue are are hilarious, but you really have to look at this page where he goes between pouting and grinning like a child. And just sort of flailing around with his arms like some kind of overacting Resident Evil character. Like, Goofy Thor is super goofy. But he quickly arrives at Loki's castle and bounds through it until he finds... Loki and Lorelai in bed. It is so hilariously soap opera-ish. Yeah, like right down to what would be the camera angle, seriously. (laughs) Thor springs to attack Loki, but Lorelai stops him and makes him grovel at her feet. Again, so, so petty. And she returns to kissing Loki, making Thor watch and ignoring Loki's rather wise warning that maybe this won't go so well. Maybe it's part of some plot from one of the good guys. And again, I'm pretty surprised that Loki is going along with this. It's like, did the Enchantress's spell work on him or is Lorelai just that good? I think she's kind of just that good. But then we have some wonderful panels of Thor watching them and losing his childlike demeanor and becoming enraged. Yeah, that thing that Simonson did back when uh, Balder got super mad at Loki for making him kill all those guys, that's kind of what we see here. Different situation, certainly, but that same level of, oh, no, you don't. And Thor's rage is powerful enough to weaken the enchantment, and he attacks Loki. Lorelai tries to calm him down, but she can't. Loki tries to distract him with visions of multiple Lorelai's, but Thor destroys them and then hurls his hammer into space, wrapping his hand around Loki's neck and holding him off of his balcony. 
And Thor's like, all right, dude, you got to free me from this enchantment that I'm still just barely resisting, but I'm not going to say that. Or Mjolnir's going to return to my hand, and you're going to be minus ahead, and this time it might not go so well for you. Loki thinks Thor's bluffing. Thor is totally not bluffing. And at the last, last minute, Loki hastily, desperately undoes the enchantment, and Thor drops him on the floor with his thanks. Next, Thor turns to Lorelai, kisses her, and yanks his cape out from under her, sending her flying onto the bed. That's much better. I mean, Thor has been punching a lot of ladies lately, and this is significantly more gentle. Yeah, here, I mean, Thor could, with good reason, be very angry at Lorelai, but he's more just mocking them, saying, Now I fear I must take my leave of this delightful retreat to return to Asgard. But I do not doubt that you will both be in good hands. Never have I known a couple who so deserved each other. And then the next couple of panels is Lorelai asking Loki if he's angry with her. And the look on his face is priceless. More than a year's worth of issues of plotting and planning. Undone because Lorelai is petty and shallow and her choices are bad choices. And I do want to take a sec to talk about this whole thing because what we have here, I mean, love potions are a common, like, comedic trope, especially in fantasy. If you think about it too hard, it starts to feel pretty weird because we are talking about issues of consent. Like, it's implied that Lorelai and Loki and Thor, there is some enchanted nookie going on that probably is not at all okay or ethical. And I don't know, I mean, because I like enjoying the humor inherent to these comics, but it's really hard to get past that part. I don't know. What's your take? For me, I at least felt that Lorelai was going to move on to Loki before the enchantment when she goes to his castle and is like complimenting his airy and asking if he's been married. You know, it did seem like she was warming up to go after him anyway. But yeah, it feels wrong. Totally. Yeah. So I don't know. Make what you will of this comic. I'm, I'm certainly conflicted on it. But uh, regardless, this is basically the end of the Lorelai love potion brainwashing Thor thing. So we don't have to worry about it for any longer than this. Well, meanwhile, Thor rushes back to apologize to Sif, the goddess he loves, and he bows low at her feet, which is a mirror of the panel of him groveling at Lorelai's feet. It's pretty nice, but Sif is having trouble forgiving him. I mean, I can't fully blame her, even though Heimdall urges her to, but regardless, they turn toward the more urgent problem of getting the Asgardian warriors home, because they're, like, still in Central Park, and, you know, the Warriors 3 are still drinking everyone under tables, and that's probably not sustainable. Yeah, things will probably go sideways pretty soon. I mean, the longer the Asgardian warriors are there with no one to fight, you know, the, the more disaster is gonna, gonna loom. But fortunately, Sif has come up with a solution. Which is a solution Thor has also been pondering, using Mjolnir, and on the other side, using Stormbreaker from Beta Ray Bill. That could use some kind of something-something magic-something to make the magic-something happen. And Thor compliments Sif, saying, Thy beauty, lady, is exceeded only by the wisdom of thy thoughts. I suspect, my lord, that you say that to all the girls. Which is a sick burn, but from Sif's perspective, she had said a painful goodbye to Bill to come home to Asgard and Thor, only to see him in love with another woman, and then he hit her in front of his mother figure and Heimdall and a bunch of kids. Not so great, it's true. But she returns to Midgard, where all the Asgardians are assembled, uh, being given the key to the city by the mayor, which is damn charming. I mean... You can have charming, heroic uh, thank you ceremonies, but they're only going to be better if the heroes in question are space Vikings. <laughs> so as a tourist and his little boy watch, Beta Ray Bill swings Stormbreaker while Thor swings Mjolnir in Asgard, opening a portal. 
And everybody starts to go home. And at this point, I want to point out that power pack number 15 happens right here. So Julie Power got in trouble at school because she was passing a note between two people with the answers to a test. She didn't realize that's what it was. She was in trouble. And she decided, well, screw this. I'm just going to go to Asgard where I won't be in trouble, where these horrible things won't happen anymore. And she tries to go through the portal, ends up getting in a fight with the power pack's nemesis, the boogeyman, which the Warriors 3 get pulled into. And Volstagg, uh, when he realizes that they haven't told their parents about their power, Powers, uh, being a father himself, insists that he's going to tell them, which means Hogan has to jam a bunch of tranquilizer darts from the boogeyman into Volstagg's butt so he doesn't have a chance to. And then Katie Power gives her baseball cap to the Warriors 3 to give to Volstagg's kid by way of apology. And it's very charming. And I guess I technically just summed up the whole issue, but you should still read this on Marvel Unlimited and Power Pack is always wonderful. And there you go. I just want to know, does Volstagg still have his I Heart New York shirt on? He totally does the entire issue. I'm getting it. <laughs> But yeah, they all go through, and there's a nice little charming coda as a tourist-looking guy and a little boy, who I suspect are based on real people, but I'm not sure who, are uh, watching everything happen as the little boy is wondering where the Warriors 3 are. Are they having an adventure of their own? In fact, they are. And the father makes a crack to a passing Walter and Louise Simonson about kids today and their imaginations, and Walter says, Well, you never can tell. Who knows? Some of them may grow up to be superheroes themselves. Nice little charming cameo there. That's right. We're having a podcast about Walter Simonson's Thor, and we did Walter Simonson's voice in the podcast. Oh, man. I hope I live up to it. (laughs) What does Walter Simonson sound like? I mean, I'm assuming awesome. Totally. This is like way meta, dude. And so... That is this arc. That is this really bizarre, weird arc. We've had all this epic stuff going on before, and this one is just... I don't know. It's just kind of silly, for lack of a better word. It's got its ups and downs. Like, at first, you've got the real kind of heart-rending Thor's, you know, grappling with Odin's death with his great-grandfather, who he doesn't know is his great-grandfather. And then, yeah, like... The credit card soldiers are kind of goofy, but then the Sif and Bill moments are really heartfelt. And then Lorelai and Loki's plan going to heck is hilarious. So yeah, it's kind of all over the place, but it ended really nicely. It did. I, I, so I was thinking about, you know, what's the deal with his arc? Because Simonson has a purpose for all of his arcs. He's showcasing different aspects of Thor, different aspects of the mythology, whatever. And I kind of think what he's doing right here is hearkening back to the Silver Age. He's hearkening back to old romance comics, which I guess would even predate that, and to very Silver Age-style Thor fights against just, you know, random, like, robot-suited communists and stuff. And it's fun. I'm not going to say that it's the most memorable arc by any means, but I think the whole uh, run would be incomplete if there weren't a little bit of a nod to what Thor used to be like. And it's, it's still done in a sort of new way, in that it's Beta Ray, Bill, and Sif who are filling in for Thor, who deal with the old Silver Age villains, so it's still a little bit novel, at least. It's kind of like a gentle reset that gives Thor enough time to process Odin's death and move on to the next adventure. And indeed, we shall move on to the next adventure in a week. But first, of course, we have, as always, our Recognitions of Merit. And we begin with the Krakadoom Award! Okay, so this being a smaller scale arc, we didn't have quite as many epic sound effects as before. My runner-up, I think, has got to be Sprang from number 358, which is the sound it makes when a Mystic Uru metal hammer whacks a GLF soldier's super awesome armor that may or may not be composed of Mr. T's gold chains. But really, the only thing that sound effect has going for it is that it's kind of funny and fun to say. I think my actual winner has to be from 357... The sound of credit cards turning into soldiers and bursting out of a trash can. You know, the kind of sound you probably hear almost every day, which is... Scathoom! 
Which reminds me, at the end of this issue, we finally find out what the GLF stands for. And it's the Green Liberation Front, which we believe just means cash. Right, like liberating the green. (laughs) It's kind of clever, actually. Yeah, it was pretty funny. All right, so with that done, what, I wonder, would win the award? Hell's Haberdashery. So actually, there wasn't a lot in this arc that we either haven't already seen before or that was just very, you know, distinctive. I was trying to make a case for Tiwaz's, you know, thin gold band for being, you know, classic yet understated. But in the end, I had to go for an issue 356, Titanium Man's big green Kirby-esque helmet. It's just so big and rounded and the glowing eyes. I really liked your comparing it to an old school TV set because that's what it reminds Reminded me of. It's like an evil communist CRT. <laughs> Next, Miles has the whatsoever holds this hammer. So my runner-up, what was almost going to be my winner, was Thor's bed from issue 357. I mean, it's just so elaborate and gigantic. Although I got to say, if I woke up and saw giant fish dragons over my face, I'd be a little terrified. It's kind of like that episode of The Simpsons where Bart has the clown head bed and keeps chanting, can't sleep, clowns will eat me. (laughs) I would be a little worried that those things would eat me or that there were people hidden inside them. It's it's Asgard. It's quite possible. They could turn into fairies in the middle of the night. Who knows? Uh, So that was pretty great, but we already talked a lot about it and the potential threesomes uh, within. So I'm actually going to go for the nonstick pan that Volstagg is so impressed with in Macy's. I mean, one, nonstick pan technology is actually pretty damn impressive, and I think it should get more credit. And two, I always enjoy when Asgardians find, like, some kind of Midgardian technology that impresses them because they've just never thought of it. I mean, we saw that with Harrokin looking at the military assault weapons. We see that with Volstag looking at this nonstick pan. I remember way later in J. Michael Straczynski's run, uh, the Asgardians are introduced to indoor plumbing when they're hovering over Broxton, Oklahoma. Apparently, they've just been, you know, thrown it off the edge of the city before, which is probably not so great when you're, you know, over Broxton property. So here is to human engineering and that which Midgard can produce gloriously. Cool, sciencey gadgets to sell for money. <laughs> and as someone who cooks a lot, I agree with Volstag. A quality nonstick pan is magic. And of course, we must finish with the most important award of all. Elizabeth, would you share with us this arc's most metal moment? So with this, there was no contest. I had to choose from issue 359 when Thor orders Loki to release him from his enchantment or Mjolnir will return to his hand, crushing Loki's head in the process. Really, that whole comic from the moment Thor finds Lorelai and Loki together until he flies away with a smile in his cape, it's just pure gold. It's pretty great. What's going to be even better, though, is next episode. I am really excited because... Next time, in Thor number 360 through 362, a promise is kept, though hell should bar the way. The Hellwolf, Garm, the death touch of Hela, and on the bridge of Gjallarbru, Scourge stands alone. This has been, and shall ever be, The The Lightning Lightning and and the the Storm! The Lightning and the Storm is produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. In Portland, Oregon, of Midgard, Realm of Mortals. Check us out at thelightningandthestorm.com. And if you'd like to help support our ad-free show and get some cool stuff, click the donate link while you're there. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. And rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play so more people can find us. We'll be back next week. Until then, fight on, brave warriors, for valor, for glory, for Asgard! For Asgard!